Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. One of the most important developments in Japan over the past 10 years, and perhaps the most important way that things are different for startups today than they were 20 years ago, is the existence of a startup ecosystem. Now, let me explain that because it's not obvious, especially to younger entrepreneurs who have never had to run a startup in the absence of a startup ecosystem. A startup ecosystem is not just a group of startups that operate in the same city. We, we had that during the dot com era. There were even VC investments, occasional meetups, and some mentoring. But we didn't really have an ecosystem back then. We had a community for sure, but not an ecosystem. An ecosystem comes into being when startups start buying from and selling to each other, when startups can target other startups with their innovative products, where a pool of employees move from startup to startup, taking their ideas and best practices and work ethic with them. When an ecosystem develops, it's an amazing cross pollination of innovation and growth that is just awesome to be a part of. This is happening in Japan. It's relatively new, and it's fantastic. Today, I'd like you to meet Kani Munidasa, co founder of Code Chrysalis, a startup that can only exist within a healthy startup ecosystem. But also one that any healthy startup ecosystem needs in order to grow. Code Chrysalis is a coding bootcamp where, over 12 weeks, students learn the skills they need to get jobs as programmers in Tokyo. And as you'll soon see, they are really getting jobs. In fact, after our conversation, there's something I want to ask you, and I mean you personally. Because it's something that you might understand better than I do. I'd ask you right now, but the question won't really make a lot of sense until after you sit in on the conversation with me and Connie. And we cover a lot of ground. We talk about how to get a programming job in Tokyo, how to ramp up skills quickly, and why diversity in programming might not mean what you think it does. But you know, Connie tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. Cheers. So I'm sitting here with Kani Munidasa, the co founder of Code Chrysalis, a Tokyo based coding bootcamp. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you for having me, Tim. Well, listen, before I get started, you can probably explain it a lot better than I can. What exactly is Code Chrysalis? Sure. Code Chrysalis is a 12 week. Software engineering bootcamp. We focus on creating versatile, autonomous software engineering leaders. The hard skills are given. You will be able to create full stack software applications by the time you graduate. But we also have a very strong focus on soft skills like leadership, empathy, communication, and teamwork. Okay, that's a lot to condense into 12 weeks. True. 
Okay, and it's, it's a full-time program or is it a part-time program? It is a 12-week full-time program, so there's absolutely no way you can hold a job while doing this program. You have to definitely get permission from your family before doing it because you won't see them much too. And also before you come in, we have you do what's called a pre-course, which takes about any, anything from like a month to two months to complete. Just to make sure they have like the minimum requirements. Exactly. To... We want all our students in the classroom starting with the same foundation. What does the boot camp cost? The boot camp for the 12 weeks and the pre-course and the, uh, the admissions process before that all included is Hyakusanman, so 1.03 million. Hyakusanman, that, that's kind of a weird number. <laughs> why, why not just an even 1 million yen? It is. Uh, we don't like rounding up. <laughs> I guess we are engineers. Um, so 1,030,000 1, yen. Correct. Okay. And you guys are teaching everything in English, English only, right? That is correct. So we believe that English is the lingua franca of technology. Our industry changes so often, the technologies that just come and go so often. It is important for you to be able to um, read the documentation firsthand and then leverage that uh, new learnings into your products and, and, and solving your problem. Well, I've noticed that Japanese engineers tend to be able to read English reasonably well, mm -hmm. but speaking English and receiving instruction in English is a really different matter. So has, has English only been a problem for some students? Has it really limited your your pool of potential it's definitely a bad business decision <laughs> uh, we could probably uh, get more students if we uh, do this in japanese to combat the problem though we did create a part-time program uh, it's two months eight saturdays it's called the english communication intensive and here we teach students to just communicate with the english that they currently have so it's more like a confidence school where Anyone who's done um, no K-12 education in Japan, I believe, can speak English, mm -hmm. but they're either worried about uh, their pronunciation or, or their grammar, uh, or they just want to sound sophisticated with the right words. In this program, we, we boost their confidence to just get your thoughts out, to be able to communicate. The, the instructors now are all uh, native English speakers. Do you plan on changing it and offering uh, Japanese instruction and hiring Japanese instructors as well in the future or are you planning on staying English only? We want to try and stay English only as, as uh, much as we can hmm. but we also want Japan's engineering ecosystem or community to be able to have a voice globally so there's so many open source projects that Japanese engineers are not taking part in there are big large forums where engineers discuss things where again we don't hear their voice uh, we've at least one our students graduating to be engineers who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the world, compete with Silicon Valley engineers. Scene. Okay, that, that's pretty ambitious for a 12-week program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, actually, let's, let's back up a bit and talk about you. Mm -hmm. So, I guess we first met, like, two years ago? Like, you were just start thinking about setting this up when we first met, right? Uh, I do owe a lot of courage to start this whole thing uh, on, on, on some, some mentors in Japan and while we hadn't spoken a lot I did read a lot of what you were doing here and it actually gave me a lot of um, energy to kind of you know jump in and do this thing in Japan. Oh, well, uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah I mean it, it is 
Japan is a lot more dynamic than most people realize. But let's see, this was early 2017. Correct. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome to see Code Crystals up and running and, and you guys having such an impact. But before founding it, you and your co-founder, Yan Fan, were both working at a coding boot camp in San Francisco. Hack Reactor, right? Yan and I, we are both graduates of Hack Reactor. It's another coding boot camp in a base out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. She did teach at Hack Reactor, and I actually also worked at Hack Reactor as a counselor after my graduation. Uh, but we, haven't, we, we weren't working the same time. She's okay. actually about two years my senior at Hack Reactor. All right. Was Hack Reactor sort of your, your inspiration and your blueprint for how you wanted to run Code Chrysalis here? Hack Reactor definitely inspired me to want to get into education and do this in Japan. I know the co-founders very well, and we were initially actually talking about bringing Hack Reactor to Japan, but I also wanted to focus a lot on the soft skills. Uh, this is something that most boot camps, even in the U.S., do not focus on. It's adequate to just teach the hard skills and then find them jobs. Hmm. Uh, what I want to do with this new concept of a boot camp is to ensure that the graduating class, the students, have the soft skills that will take them to the leadership levels, uh, to be future CIOs, CTOs, and, and kind of lead Japan's software industry. So was that decision more of one based on your personal philosophy or was that based on a difference between what you saw in San Francisco and here in Tokyo? A little bit of both. So I was, uh, until I quit my job, I was in executive positions in large tech companies in in San Francisco, uh, EMC, Greenplum, uh, Pivotal Labs, uh, to name a few. But I did not code. I was not an engineer. Uh, so I was very curious about that world. But, but the difference, you're right, where the Japan and, and U.S. difference is, we realized that most of the engineers we meet here were really not able to, uh, one, they didn't have the opportunity to uh, work in diverse environments as the U.S. counterparts did, uh, or for that matter, um, bring their ideas to the table. It's all so when you say it's like a diverse environment, what, what do you mean? So, I mean... I've been to plenty of startups in San Francisco, and it's a bunch of, you know, white dudes in their, their <laughs> 20s and 30s, and it, it's, it, they're very smart, but I wouldn't say it's particularly diverse, yeah, sure. and, and you can go into Japanese startups, and there'll be a bunch of Japanese dudes in their 20s and 30s, and it's, so when you say diversity, what are you, yeah. what are you talking about? It's really? not just diversity in terms of uh, the uh, members in the team. Silicon Valley engineers would, would change jobs, I would say, on average every two years. Uh, they, get to see diff- they get to work in different industries. They get to work in different uh, technology, technology stacks. Okay. Uh, they get to uh, work with other different kinds of people too. Um, so this is the kind of uh, uniqueness in, in San Francisco that makes that engineer that much more valuable year after year because they, all, they, are, they are very diverse in working in different industries and technologies. So, so it's more of like a, a, a diversity of technologies and a diversity of uh, occupational experience. As well. Okay. When creating Code Chrysalis, when creating a boot camp for Japan, what else did you have to change from the U.S. model and, and what stayed the same? Um, so the biggest 
uh, changes that we injected into this program were uh, autonomy and versatility and communication. So versatility in the sense you need to be able to have the skill set to work from anything from the front end all the way to the back end. Uh, so one, one of our engineers can single-handedly create a full-stack application, a web application. Well, that's uh, interesting. So U.S. boot camps don't focus on that? or you, you, That part, U.S. boot camps definitely focus okay, on. That, so is, the that same. is the same. And the other part is the autonomy in being able to uh, learn anything. As engineers, your entire life you'll be presented with problems. And your go- role is to find solutions to these problems. And that part as well, in most boot camps, yeah. you will be, we call it uh, more than teaching, you come to learn, right? How, how do you, what's the approach? How do you teach someone, uh, how do you learn to learn? That's one of my, my biggest takeaways from me doing the boot camp too. It's called meta-learning where you, you really start to understand how, how you learn as a, as a person, and we all learn very differently. How do you, how do you teach that, though? How do you get so, the students to figure out what works for them? So it's, it is like enlightenment, in a way, <laughs> in a certain way, because you, have to, you, you can't teach it. You, everybody's way of learning is very different and unique. We don't spoon-feed anything. There is no lectures that tell you this is what you do next. We give you code bases that are broken. We give you some introduction of a high-level framework. And then you got to f- we do a lot of pair programming. You got to uh, work in pairs, figure things out. And, and while doing this, you start to understand how, uh, what you're good at, what you're weak at. These things become very apparent. And then slowly what becomes apparent is how you learn. So it's mostly just uh, helping the students be aware of how they're learning and what works for them and what Correct. doesn't. Okay, that makes sense. Well, let's dive deep into Code Chrysalis and the, the business model and the, the curriculum. So uh, tell me about your students. Who takes this boot camp and why? 32% of our students are actually already engineers. Uh, the other 32 come from different professions. Um, they may have some engineering background, meaning they may be hardware engineers or, uh-huh. or mechanical electrical engineers. The other 36 actually have never coded in their lives. So they are English teachers, they are musicians. So that's kind of the mix of students that we have today. And it's about 44% Japanese right now in a class. Uh, rest are foreigners either living here or coming from abroad. Wow, so it doesn't sound like there's any particular theme. Is it all, or maybe it's people who are looking for a career change or... The 36% are definitely looking for a career change. Uh, even other 32% that are normally uh, you know, in biz dev or engineering, they're also definitely looking to either build something on their own or go into a software engineering career. Okay. You mentioned like the one-third that is coming from a non-technical background. Mm-hmm. Do they have trouble keeping up with like the one-third that are already engineers? This is the brilliance of the program, if you will. We have created the curriculum in such a way that it can challenge the already engineers as well as the beginners. Some people, yes, they may have already uh, have a computer science degree. They may have worked as an engineer for three, four years. But we have ways, we have nightmare mode on top of advanced mode. If they finish their goals, there's advanced mode and nightmare mode that they could work on. <laughs> All right. Whereas the... the what, I've got to ask, what is, what is nightmare <laughs> mode? Uh, it's basically, if you, if you finish your uh, assignment and you still have cycles, you will work on some advanced criteria. Uh-huh. And if you finish that, there is stuff that will keep them up all night. So it's like, it's like crunch time. It's, uh, yeah. 
I've spent a fair part of my career in nightmare mode. <laughs> uh, well, I read in an earlier interview you gave, or it might have been Jan, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that 80% of the applicants don't pass the screening process to join the boot camp. That is correct. Screening process, the, the first thing you do is you go online and you hit the apply button, but what you're presented with is a coding challenge. Mm-hmm. And until you crack that challenge, you can't even write your name and email address. From the very beginning, we filter people who, who have an introduction to JavaScript. Uh, that's the language we teach. The challenge is not that difficult. There's great uh, material out there for free that they can use themselves to learn to crack the code. So what type of a challenge? A lot of our listeners are engineers and programmers. So, I mean, what type of a challenge are you asking them to solve? Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, we ask them to create a data type with their name and their emails. And then we ask them to write another function that will combine all of that together and then spit out something in a certain format. Okay. Uh, so... If, if a third complete beginner could spend about maybe two weeks to crack the code, yeah. Okay, so it's not timed. They just have to no, complete it. Correct. Right. It's on there and, and, and clear. So it's, it sounds pretty reasonable. If someone's committed to getting it done, they'll get it done. This is the key word, Tim. We are looking for students who are committed and who are passionate about doing this. Yeah, you mentioned that you have a, a 100% placement rate for graduates who are looking for engineering jobs. That's awesome. How do you how do you do that? Yeah, uh, the hundred percent <laughs> placement rate is we give them three months to find a job. So we are saying within three months, our graduates have found jobs if that's what their goal was. It is a seekers market in Japan. Uh, there are more jobs than engineers uh, yeah. right now. Uh, however, it's still not easy to get a job. I think one thing our employers who know us now they value our students from the get go just because. They decided to quit their jobs, spend Hakusam Mang, and invest their time and energy in this program. That's a mindset there alone that they kind of are interested in. That's so. Um, now that's interesting because Japanese companies tend to mostly care about uh, university degrees and you know official certifications and things like that. So it's it's interesting that they're starting to value programs like uh, boot camps and Code Chrysalis. So are most of your graduates getting jobs? At, I mean, who's hiring them? Is it big companies? Is it startups, Western companies, Japanese companies? Both. Our students have got offers from Sony, Fast Retailing, NTT Data on the big side. And of course, we've got on the other end uh, cool Japanese startups like Zahitomo, who would also make offers to our students. Uh, I mean, is there a, an overall trend? Is it- uh, the trend is definitely, and where the students also want to go, are places that's growing and where they can contribute day one and also keep learning. So they like the uh, startup, more smaller startup environment companies better. Uh, having said that, uh, last class, uh, one of our students got offers from multiple companies, uh, but picked Sony, the least compensation out of all offers, but still it was his dream job and he decided to go there. Yeah, actually, compensation for engineers in Japan is pretty low by by world standards. I've had previous guests mention that they were recruiting engineers from China to come to Japan and they had to take a pay cut. Mm -hmm. You're saying the average salary for your graduates is about 6 million yen per year? Our graduates? Yes. So that's about $50,000, $55,000. And that's a pretty good salary for a junior engineer in Japan. Correct. Correct. Why do you think that despite the low salaries, so many engineers 
want to come to Japan and live here? A lot of people these days aren't focusing on just a paycheck. They value different things as part of a compensation. Even some of our instructors who are from San Francisco, they look at the entire package. You know, working in Japan for、uh, a couple of months or a year is definitely an experience that is something that they value. Rather than just the compensation of the paycheck. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, software development in, until relatively recently,、uh, I mean, I'd say until certainly before 2000, software engineering in Japan was considered very much like a blue collar type of, type of job. So the attitudes have really shifted in the last 20 years or so. And it's still shifting. It's not fast enough, in my opinion. A lot of the software. Is still outsourced in a company and it's done because it, they feel that's the least valuable component. But, but it is true, they're starting to value software engineering and the engineers as people who can add value to the bottom line and, and features and functionality products. So, have any of、uh, Code Chrysalis graduates gone on to found their own startups? We haven't had anyone、um, go the entrepreneurial route and build a business. That's interesting.、Um, Are, so, are most people going into boot camps either in the US or in Japan? Are their, their goal is to get a job as an engineer, not so much start their own? Defi-、uh, so, what I was trying to say is、uh, definitely small numbers still.、Uh, we have had the opposite entrepreneurs coming into our program so they can build their own prototypes.、Oh. They don't have to hire CTOs, they can just create their own thing.、Uh, there are some people, while having a, a, doing a day to day job, who are playing with some projects. So, I, f- I believe it's a matter of time、uh, before some person decides to completely focus and, and take one of their products、uh, to the next level as、right. a business. But so far, the objective of the students has been mostly to, to get a good software development job. Correct.、All、yes.、Right. Um, let's talk tech. So, you're teaching engineers to develop full stack applications. So, what's your stack? We say we use JavaScript and English to teach.、Right. Uh, we, we are not a JavaScript school, though. We, we say we are very language agnostic. We want our engineers to be able to be flexible and, and use any language they need to solve problems. Week eight of their program is actually called Polyglottal Week, and they have to learn a language that they've never learned before, create an app, and present it back in a week. Having said that, you have to teach them some language and you have to give them a good foundation. So, we use、uh, Node.js,、mm-hmm. which is JavaScript working, running on the server side, to build servers and the back end. And on the front end, we teach JavaScript and frameworks such as React.、Uh, Japan and Asia is also heavy use of a, a, a framework called Vue,、mm-hmm. um, which we also incorporated in our second class once we realized that.、Uh, so, it's mostly a JavaScript based、uh, program、uh, with React and、uh, Vue on the front end.、Right. And Uh, databases, we do、uh, NoSQL and SQL databases. That's interesting. So it's, it's a JavaScript heavy stack. And it's so interesting because if you would have asked me 15 years ago you know, to list the top five most popular languages in 2020, there is no way I would have picked JavaScript. <laughs> in fact, today people still laugh at us in Japan that we are doing this program in JavaScript. But three and a half years ago, Stanford. Change the entire computer science program from Java to JavaScript. And I think that's a good telltale sign of how far JavaScript has come and that it's, it's inevitable to kind of ignore. I'm curious here because there, there's sort of two opinions on JavaScript. 
there are some people who genuinely love the language. And then there's some people like, like me who think JavaScript is sort of the new, the new Fortran. Mm-hmm. So we're stuck with it because there's so much written in JavaScript, so we better just get used to it. So which, which camp are you in? So I'm not a professional engineer, but having said that, I believe the power of JavaScript for a couple of reasons. One, it is the inevitable language that is on the web. All our browsers have a JavaScript engine, and no matter what language you write it with, you have to still write JavaScript. That's one. Two, the community has grown so much, and there's so many tools and frameworks that you can use uh, that it's becoming easier and easier for people to get into JavaScript, to learn JavaScript. And not only that, now you can use JavaScript not only on the back end, but even in IoT devices. All these microcontrollers that you have today, uh, you can load these uh, frameworks and you can now program it in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So the hurdles that you had of having to know different languages, do different things, also is kind of going away. Um, so it just makes sense. It's like a, a good practical first language. You can yes. do a lot of things with it. Absolutely. It's not and that hard to learn. It's not that hard to learn. It's very forgiving. It's not a strict language. But again, it's just the language we are using to teach software engineers to be software engineers. You have to have an open mind. You have to use the right language when you have to create different uh, applications. Well, let's talk a bit about Japan in general. So one thing I've noticed in Japanese software engineers is there is this Japanese tendency towards perfection. And there's good sides and bad sides of that trait. But is that something you see? And is that something you see as hurting Japanese software development? We do see this, and it's, it's a real bad practice. Uh, when it comes to in engineering software or building software products, uh, you really need to have a very agile mindset. If you are trying to iron out the specs for six months, and then build it in another six months to a year, the chances are users may not even need this product that you just built. Uh, we believe that you want to create a minimum viable product in a very short period of time, maybe a month, and then you use the product that you've built and you, you get feedback from your customers and, and, and kind of iterate on this product, adding features and functionality as, they, as, as your customers want. So how do you get your students out of that mindset? So at our school, we teach Lean Startup, and also uh, what extreme programming practices. Mm -hmm. So everybody has to pair program. We also practice TDD, which is test-driven development. You have to write a test first before you write write enough code. Uh, This eliminates the need to have a huge QA organization. Uh, Continuous integration and deployment are also things that we teach. But it starts from the very beginning. Everything we do, we do using pair programming, TDD, and agile methodologies. All their products that they have to build, they're actually currently building their MVP for their graduation project. They have till Wednesday to build the minimum product that, that they feel is a working product but with lacking features. Okay. So I guess just, yeah, 12 weeks, tight schedule. Um, the students are kind of forced to abandon that, that need for perfection just to keep up. Correct. Oh, Correct. Okay. You know... EdTech in Japan, and, and I consider Code Chrysalis as part of the broader category of, of EdTech because it's changing how education is done in Japan. But as we were talking about before, education in Japan up to now has been so focused on certifications and degrees and 
not so much on skills. Has this been a, a stumbling block for you? Um, yes. We realized that the education industry in Japan, for most part, uh, like gym memberships, uh, you feel good after you apply. And chances are you don't finish the programs or you don't get anything out of it. And this is a business model that most educational programs are, are using. So how do you overcome this? Uh, yeah, we don't even give our students a certificate to show back to anyone. Really? Correct. Huh, uh, all we, right. we tell them to go and show your skills uh, and, and what you can build and what you can do and not a piece of paper. It's been hard though because we also have enterprises sending their employees to our program. In, in that case, I think it's very easy to see when they come back how much they have learned. Uh, we have a couple of students from NTT Data, but once they go back, they're running a project on their own. That's, let's dig into that because I, I would imagine if you're trying to do corporate sales and um, trying to sell to a company like NTT Data or, or any large Japanese company, it would be really hard to sell them on the program without giving some kind of a certification. It almost seems like a requirement. It's amazing. Companies like NTT Data, I, I, I honestly thought it was a large conglomerate that worked in a very old-fashioned Japanese company mentality. Uh, they seeked us out while we were still doing our third cohort. Uh, one of the reasons why they were losing some of the employees who wanted to come and join the program so the HR department came and said, okay, what's going on here? What's this program? And explain a little more about uh, yourselves. And when, once we did that, they did see the value immediately. And they have sent multiple students where they've not only paid for the program, but they've allowed them to draw a salary during that time. Oh, wow. So they understood pretty fast what we're doing and the advantage. Uh, and we are starting to have more conversations with enterprise. And, and they, they didn't ask you for a certificate? And- all right. Well, that's, that's a promising <laughs> development. Yes. Do you think NTT Data, or at least those people you were working with at NTT Data, do you think that's unique, or do you think this is a, a trend that's changing throughout Japanese companies now? They are unique, and I think NTT Data has in many ways been a trendsetter for the rest. Uh, most of the things that they do and adopt are eventually adopted by other companies, uh, so they look up to them as leaders. I feel other companies are also changing. We are in talks with multiple different large companies, either a way to train their new hires that are coming in, joining in April, or to just raise the skill levels of their existing engineers. Huh, that's good to hear. It's been so focused on degrees and majors. And, and I mean, let's face it, the state of computer science education in Japan is absolutely terrible. <laughs> Most new grads can't code. Mm-hmm. Most computer science professors have never had to deliver a project to a customer. Yeah. So there is a real gap in computer science education here. The starting salary for a software engineer, junior, out of a four-year college is about $3.5 million, whereas we, So about $30,000. Correct. And we, we do $6.5 million on average. And I think the biggest difference or, or the value that the employers see at that point in time is our junior engineers are people who can write code immediately, whereas the uh, latter uh, version uh, has to still go through about six months to nine months of internal training before they can, they're trusted with writing codes on production systems. Even a computer science major. Correct. How do we fix that? I mean, obviously... <laughs> Companies like Code Chrysalis are a part of the solution, but it's a much bigger problem than one boot camp can fix. 
I want to believe that next year and year after there will be more and more boot camps uh, in Japan and that's a great thing uh, because it's a, it, 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 there are good and bad boot camps but the good ones can really make a huge impact and add the kind of numbers of engineers Japan needs for their future. At a collegiate level, um, I'm not sure really how you fix that. We, we aspire to be producing uh, more graduates than any of the technical schools combined in the future. This is my personal goal. So, and that's, I think, when we'll feel like we've achieved something. Uh, but I, I believe strongly that there's so many boot camps, good ones too, in the world. Uh, they haven't come to Japan for the same reasons we were hesitating. Uh, but as, as we are able to show that we are still surviving and that our students are getting great jobs, I feel they will start coming. Hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that day uh, because you're, you're right, we can't single-handedly save Japan or create all the engineers it needs. It's an interesting balance because, I mean, you, you're comparing a 12-week boot camp to a four-year degree program. So I, I'm a self-taught engineer, but I've always had the utmost respect for the CS majors at certain times, like algorithms. You know, there's every, every once in a while, <laughs> you'll be backed into a corner where they like... Those are the guys that know how to get something done. So, so I, I think the universities have to play a role because there, there's, there's something to be said for that depth of pedagogy, that depth of instruction. Sure, we do too. We have tons of respect uh, for universities and CS degree holders. And absolutely, they know certain things way more than any boot camp student will. Boot camps are no different from vocational schools that... You know, every other industry had, if you want to do woodworking, you go to a woodworking vocational school or a, be a mechanic, you go and you actually practice a skill, you learn how to fix something versus spending too much time on theory. Uh, it's not to say the theory is bad, uh, but this gives you skills to work immediately in a job. Uh, I just met um, a data scientist visiting from San Francisco and she was saying the same thing. Data scientists are most of the time like PhDs. But then if that same data scientist can't work with a software engineer in, in creating a product. So these are important skills on both sides that people should have. Well, listen, Connie, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. Okay. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the legal system, the way people thought about starting companies anything at all, to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan, what would you change? Yeah, that's the easy one. Yeah. Now, one thing, I mean, there's a couple, but if, it has, if, I, if, I can, if the one only works once, it's, it's, I want them to be bilingual. Oh. Uh, going forward, if Japan doesn't seriously become bilingual, and I mean by that speaking English, the gap between them and other countries and, and their leadership position will continue to uh, widen. Why is that? Is it just the ability to like read technical documents, or why is English so essential? I think this applies to other industries as well, but focusing on the tech industry, technology, no matter which country you're in, uh, is practiced in English. And there's so much open source projects that people are contributing from all over the world. There are forums that engineers can go and, and get information or, or provide value. If you are not able to do these things, you're still going to be working inside an island okay. and, and a closed, closed, closed environment. Right. So the lack of English just means they can't participate in the global conversation 
in whatever industry they're in. Correct. That makes sense. So it just becomes more isolated. Yes. Okay. Well, listen, Connie, everyone, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. It's a pleasure. Enjoy it very much. And we're back. Okay. I'm old. I'm, I'm practically ancient in developer years. Developer years are kind of like dog years. Technology changes so fast, as many developer skills become obsolete in one year, as they do in seven years for normal professions. So yeah, it's like dog years. Now, I've been programming a long time. I mean, I've never actually used punch cards, but studying physics back in university, a lot of my classmates did. I can't program in COBOL, but I can read it. I've managed large teams where the system of record was in COBOL, so I had to understand what was going on. And this gets us to my question for you. You see, all that experience lets me spot and discount trendy but unimportant development fads that are always popping up, and it lets me focus on what's important. That experience gives me a healthy skepticism of the latest silver bullet that the tool vendors want to sell me. But you know, my experience also works against me sometimes. Sometimes it makes me overly skeptical of things that really are new and important. Sometimes there really are fundamental shifts in the industry. And here's where I want to ask your advice. A very large number of Disrupting Japan listeners are startup founders and engineers working at startups. Now, my gut feel would be that someone whose programming education is that they graduated from a 12-week boot camp should not be let anywhere near production code. But I think my gut might be wrong on this. Programming has changed a lot over the last 10 years. There's much less being built from scratch and much more work that is integrating existing components and testing frameworks and testing practices become better and better every year. So I would love to hear from founders and team leaders and CTOs who've hired programmers straight out of boot camps and let me know how they fit into your team. What kind of tasks do they do and what do you expect of them after they join? Get in touch and let me know how boot camp graduates have performed in the wild. In any event, you can't argue with success. And Code Chrysalis's many happy customers and their amazing 100% placement rates and much higher starting salaries, it means they're clearly doing something right. And more important, perhaps, even though we didn't talk about this much, boot camps like Code Chrysalis could be even more valuable for people who don't want to be professional developers, or even for people who don't consider themselves as technical at all. If you're a product manager, or in support, or even in technical sales, knowing how to code, knowing what you can and should expect from developers, being able to put together a prototype will make you twice, triple, even more productive at your job. We live in a digital world, and even salesmen and poets should learn to code. 
If you want to talk about coding boot camps and the people who go there or the people who should go there, Connie and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 136 and let us know what you think. And when you get the chance, please check out Disrupting Japan on Facebook or LinkedIn. If you ask a question there, I guarantee you I'll reply. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.